Hello, and welcome back to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm glad you could join us if you're back with us. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you back up and start with Genesis 1. Don't jump in at chapter 6. You're missing some background, and it it just won't be as, as clear as it could be. And our goal here is to help in an understanding of God's Word and its context and what it means, well, to the people it was originally given to, but also to us as well. You know, what is God saying to us and how does this impact our lives? Because the goal of this whole exercise is to truly grasp hold of Scripture. So again, I welcome you. Glad you're part of this podcast and or I'm welcoming you back, whatever the case may be. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time together today, looking at Genesis chapter 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, as we study your word, help us to understand. Father, maybe not all the details, maybe not all the aspects that, that aren't clear or lost to history, but, but Father, the things that are clear, help us to understand them and apply them to our lives in a way that brings glory to you, in a way that helps us to be more obedient in living our lives in relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy, though you are a just God and you do judge your creation by your standard of holiness. You also provide grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration. Father, we thank you for that. And we trust in your grace and mercy as found in Jesus the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, now we dig in to chapter 6. And in the first verse, it says, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Now we're going to stop right there. That poses some questions. What's this whole daughters of men, sons of God thing? Well, there's a few different thoughts on that. One is that the sons of God refers to angelic beings, in this case, fallen angelic beings. Um, and that, you know, at that point in time, God allowed procreation between angelic beings and humanity. Um, there's some indication of that in following verses as we get down to verse four, but we don't know for sure. We just don't know for sure. It could be that the, the sons of God meant the descendants of Seth of Adam through Seth, the, the righteous lineage versus daughters of men being daughters of Cain. And that, you know, there might've been an influence by Cain's lineage in corrupting Seth's lineage. I don't know. Uh, there's also the possibility here that, um, that we're dealing with something else entirely that, that it could be the flip of that, that the sons of God, because uh, in the Old Testament, we do see uh, references to you will be gods and things like that. Not big G, but little G, um, not the one true God, but uh, people of influence and authority and renown. Uh, it could be these are some of, say, Lamech, descendant of Cain, the corrupt king um, who took multiple wives and, and murdered and and whatnot. It could be that those are him and his descendants are being referred to as the sons of God 
versus the daughters of men being the descendants of Seth. We just don't know. Okay. And we don't have to. This isn't a salvation issue. It's not a huge deal. It's just one of those curious passages that we hit and we're kind of like, huh, I wonder what he's talking about there. And I wish I could give you a clear understanding, but I wonder what he's talking about there. Uh, but like I say, it seems to me, especially looking at later verses and the bulk of Jewish and Christian thought through history has been that this is fallen angels and human women. Um, so there we go. Now the passage goes on in verse three, and we've got another question that comes up. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespans will be no more than 120 years. Wow. sounds like God just set an expiration date on us. What does that mean? Well, some people hear that and they go, okay, so as humanity, we won't live past 120 years. The problem is there are people after Noah that we've got record of in the Bible that lived beyond 120 years. Um, so what about, well, in the future? Well, that's kind of vague. One of the understandings of this passage, and I think it's where I fall, it's a pretty legitimate understanding in my assessment for what that's worth is that he's saying that the flood, that he is going to end humanity in 120 years. Uh, he's kind of setting a time limit on when the flood would occur. Now, they don't know anything about a flood at this point. We haven't even mentioned flood at this point, but it's coming. We're going to hear it in the story in a minute. So that's where I land on this. Again, non-salvation issue. We, could, we can simply say, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. That's just my thoughts on the subject. And it's okay to do that with some of these areas of Scripture. Um, we can get in the trouble when we start declaring that we know when really we're just entrenched in our opinion on it. And we start elevating your agreement with me to the level of a salvation issue because it's not. Whether we understand this whole daughters of men, sons of God thing, or the 120-year thing has no bearing on salvation. Nor does it have any bearing on the reality of what God has done and is doing. So we need to learn to relax on some of these things. They're interesting. They might be fun to debate or to study or to, to just uh, brainstorm about. But we don't need to elevate them to a level of importance that they should not have. And I say that having just spent the last five minutes talking about it. So let's move on to verse four. Now in verse four, it says, In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. What are the Nephilites, the Nephilim? Uh, well, they're, they're giants, okay? Uh, in those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Now understand the, the biblical concept of hero here is not necessarily a, a good thing. Doesn't mean they're the great guy. This isn't Superman. This is, you know, this is, uh, yeah, I know Superman's not real, but um, this is the idea that they were the champions, the the warriors of great reputation, the, the winners. Um, 
you know, think, think they were the Goliaths of their day. And it was a big deal. Uh, nobody really stood a chance against them. And it says that these are the people, these Nephilites, these giant Nephilites, uh, they were the, the offspring of the sons of God and of human women. So that, you know, that kind of helps us understand one and two a little bit. And like I said, that has been a traditional Jewish and Christian understanding that has fallen angelic beings intermixing with humanity. The Lord observed, in verse 5, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Wow. Does it get much worse than that? The answer is no. I mean, that's as bad as it gets. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought or imagined, that is anything they thought to do and anything they, they could conceptualize, was twisted. It was evil. Wow, what an indictment. In fact, it was totally, consistently, and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. You may go, well, can God be sorry about something he did? Isn't he all-knowing and all-powerful? Couldn't he just change it? Couldn't he have just done it? No. God had a plan. We know from the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, God had a plan from before creation. He had a plan. He knew that this was part of the pain of creating humanity for a relationship with him that he was going to bear. The ultimate expression of that pain being Christ on the cross, God in the flesh, paying the price for our sin. This is so the Lord was sorry that he'd ever made them and put them on the earth. And then I think the most important part of that verse, those last four words, it broke his heart. He created us for so much more. He created us to be in a loving relationship with him. And then he watched us twist it, break it, take everything he had blessed us with and turn it into something ugly. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. What an expression of the grief of God at the sin of humanity and the corruption that that sin brings. Now, that sounds pretty hopeless. God's saying, that's it. That's it. I'm just, I'm going to wipe it all out. I regret that I ever made it. But then verse 8. 
then that glimmer of hope because it looks like humanity's toast it looks like creation's toast and then toast being a bad thing wiped out burnt to a crisp you know gone but no or in this case flooded out but but noah found favor with the lord now it doesn't say noah was was you know perfect or anything but noah found favor with the lord we're going to learn a little more about that as we continue on but it's always important when scripture is taking us a direction like you know i'm sorry i ever did this uh, it broke his heart uh, i'll wipe away the human race i've created from the face of the earth destroy every living thing all people large animals small animals scurry on the grounding birds of the sky he's he's working his way back through the genesis account there is what he's doing he says i am sorry i ever made them but Scripture is full of these either therefore moments or but moments. And this is an important one. Noah found favor with the Lord. Now we get to the story of Noah. And it starts in verse 9 of chapter 6. Here we go. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, I'm going to stop there. We covered two verses, and we need to make something very clear here. In verse 8, it said, Noah found favor with the Lord. Then we move into, this is the account of Noah and his family. And it says, Noah was a righteous man. The only blameless person living on the earth at the time. Does that mean Noah was sinless? No. It says Noah was blameless. Why was he blameless? Well, that's the last part of verse 9. He walked in close fellowship with God. Think his, what, grandfather, great-grandfather, Enoch? Um, he came from this righteous line that honored God and followed God. And we had gotten to the point where Noah was the descendant in that lineage. And Noah walked with God. He walked in close fellowship with God. You see, that relationship with God changes everything for humanity and for individual humans. The rest of humanity was living in rebellion against God, was, had walked away from God, whereas Noah walked in close fellowship with God. That makes the difference. That makes a person blameless. That makes a person righteous because of their relationship with God, because of their close fellowship with God, not because they got everything right. It really is all about who you know and you need to know the lord and he was the father of three sons shem ham and japheth now verse 11 it says now god saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence god observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt so god said to noah I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Now, 
before we move on to 14 and what follows, you know, God's telling Noah, look, this is a reset. I'm going to do this. Now, does he mean all? Uh, no. He means he's going to preserve a remnant because that's what we're about to get into is the instructions on building the ark and what God would do to provide hope and a future for humanity and for that matter, for creation. So we, we've got to take that into account. We can't just go, okay, he's going to wipe everything out. So let's, let's stop and think about that for a moment. God is looking at the violence and the corruption and saying, that's it. It's time for a reset on this. And he has chosen Noah, the man who's called righteous because he walks with God. He walks in fellowship with God to see things forward. Folks, our hope is found in relationship with God. Our hope is found in walking in fellowship with God, not in running away from him, not in rebelling against him. That was true in Noah's day, and it's true in our day today. We need to remember that, and we need to stay focused on these things. So in verse 14, we begin to see how God leads Noah towards this hope that he is providing. This avenue of, well, actually the term would be of salvation for humanity. In verse 14, he says, build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Now, again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, which kind of smooths that out a little bit. The truth is this cypress wood or gopher wood, as some of the older translations render it, we have no idea what that was. We assume it's some sort of a conifer wood, but we don't know exactly what it is. Again, it doesn't really matter. It was a good solid wood. So build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Now, this would have been an odd construction for its day, but those are the instructions. He says, then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Now that's rendered into American standard English uh, units. You can find other translations that'll render it as metric. I, I just don't live in a society right now that operates by metric, so I'm using a translation that renders it in feet and, and things of that nature. Uh, the original biblical reference is cubit, which is an 18-inch increment of measurement, basically. It is the tip of the fingers to the elbow. Uh, that was the standard of measurement. And then it says in verse 16, leave an 18 inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Now, there's the instructions for building the ark. And there are people that really like to get into that, and you're welcome to. Uh, there have been some great studies out there, and lots of individuals have done lots of research into, um, you know, what sort of storage capacity, hauling capacity, uh, how many cubic feet displacement of water this ark would have had, um, you know, all that type of stuff. I'm not going to spend time on that because that's not the focus of, of what I'm doing right now. And that's research you can do on your own. And it's great research. There's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Uh, there's even a, a reconstruction or an attempt at a reconstruction of the ark up in what, Kansas or somewhere like that, that um, 
you know, is, is great for illustrative purposes. But again, the ark isn't the point. The point is God is providing hope. God is providing a way of salvation for humanity. God is not wiping out all of creation and all of humanity. He is removing the worst of the corruption to reset and start fresh. Humanity is still tainted by that original sin in the garden. That hasn't gone away. But the extreme corruption that has been taking place, God is dealing with. Now we get to verse 17. God says, look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on the earth will die. But I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him to. Now there's the account, there's the story of of it being laid out, the instructions and what he was supposed to do. And notice it wasn't Noah's job to go out and round up all the animals. God says, what does he say? They will come to you to be kept alive. God would send to him. And we still have this, this relationship between humanity and the animals of creation. In humanity having dominion and responsibility over the animals of creation. We're going to see that theme carried forward. Um, it, it is not wrong at all to say that God has tasked us as humanity with a stewardship of our environment, of our world, of the animals. Um, that's part of our responsibility. Now, we haven't always been good about shouldering that responsibility. Sometimes we have run from it and we have abused what we were given responsibility for. But here God is reestablishing much of what we saw back in the beginning of Genesis, back in creation, back in that relationship between Adam and then Eve and the rest of creation. We're seeing that kind of reset here in the ark. The ark is, I believe, something that literally took place. I also believe that it has some symbolic significance, and we see it referenced in the New Testament as well. We'll we'll get to that later. But it is a way of God looking at the sin of humanity, of judging that sin, but also providing a way forward in hope through Noah and through his downline. And we talked about how Noah walked with God. He was seen as righteous because he walked with God. He was in fellowship with God. Well, part of that is obedience. Verse 22, so Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. And I know we can kind of 
build into that story and and Genesis 7 that we'll get to next week covers uh, more detail of some of this. But there's the overview of it. God's judgment, but also God's mercy. The penalty of sin, but also the promise of salvation found in Noah and what God commanded him to do. And the importance that Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. The account of Genesis throughout Genesis and then expanding that out through the rest of Scripture is the account of humanity's sin and rebellion against God, God's judgment being rendered, and then a way forward of hope and salvation through obedience to God, through turning to God, through fellowship with God, through walking with God, instead of rebelling against him and running away. It's a theme we see echoed over and over again. It's a theme that points towards one place, the cross of Christ. And it is not accidental that it points towards the cross of Christ. It is the gospel story being related throughout scripture. And it's related not to condemn, but to provide hope and to provide a way forward. Over and over, the message isn't, you're with the group that's going to be wiped away, you deserve it. It's, you don't have to be. You don't have to be living under the penalty of your sin. You don't have to be living separated from God. Because it's not really living. Instead, you can walk with God. You can have a right relationship with Him and experience the salvation that is found in Him. Folks, it's the message of all of Scripture. And it is the message of Genesis. And it is most definitely the message of the flood account and of Noah. Now you may say, Hey, but there's other stories about a flood account and things of that nature. We'll dig into those a little more as we look at chapter seven. I thank you for joining us today as we continue studying our way through the book of Genesis and through God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do forgive us, that you do provide us that way forward of hope and salvation. Father, help us to break free from our sin. Help us to turn from our own arrogance and our own rebellion and turn to you, that we may walk with you and be found righteous. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that is found in Jesus the Christ. We thank you that you love us and your heart hurts for us. We pray in Jesus' name as we express our thanks. Amen.